By way of, well, I guess before introduction to the sermon, I got sick on Thursday and um, thought I was over it. Now I'm trying to decide whether my fever is actually breaking now in the pulpit or whether it's just continuing on. So uh, I'm not feeling real well, but uh, I am very excited about this passage of Scripture. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to preach a couple more sermons from this uh, selection of Scripture uh, because really what I'm doing is I am uh, preaching a, uh, a mini-series, if you will, on living as Christians in a non-Christian world. And um, there's just so much here on that subject. Let's uh, go to the Lord. Father, I thank You that You promised that um, You uh, perfect uh, Your power in our weakness. As I am feeling uh, weakness right now, I ask God for um, You to supply the power. Father, I ask that You would um, help me to proclaim uh, Your Word boldly. And I pray for um, Your people that they would receive it um, not only um, with their ears, but also in their hearts. And uh, most of all, as Jesus Christ is the Word of God, I pray that they would receive and trust in Him. I pray in His name. Amen. Well, as I was saying, there is so much here in these 14 verses from John 17. And the overarching theme of Jesus' prayer for His disciples is that the Father would help them to live as Christians in a non-Christian world. And so, again, I am preaching this little mini-series to help us live as Christians in a non-Christian world. Last week we saw how concerned Christ was to um, to make sure that His disciples knew that even though that they, they are living in the world, they are absolutely not of the world. And in order for us to live as Christians in a non-Christian world, we must also understand that we no longer belong to the world. And so that was last week. This week we're going to continue this theme but we're going to focus on the fact that we are God's people. So if we're going to live as Christians in a non-Christian world, first of all, it is essential that we know that we are not of the world. Secondly, it is even more essential that we know that we are God's people. That we belong to God. We are His dearly loved people. And... This is something that Christ wants to make sure that we understand. In these 14 verses, He says that we are God's people no less than four times. In fact, you could look at verses 1 through 5 and find another time in the passage beyond this, I think around verse 24 or 22, I can't remember which. He says again, we are God's people, but He is... He is uh, very concerned that His disciples know that they are God's people. 
Hence, also, he is concerned that we know that we are God's people. So in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. He says it again in verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again in verse 11, Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Finally, verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. So do you think that Jesus wants us to understand and lay hold firmly of this idea that we are God's people? Of course He does. It is vital that we understand and lay hold of it by faith that we are God's people. This difficulty is an idea that's actually impossible for us to grasp on our own. When it comes to God's love, our thoughts, unfortunately, are too human. They're too small. We fit our categories of how we love into um, how God loves us, and that's inadequate. To fully understand what it means to belong to God, to fully understand just how much God loves us with His infinite love, we need the Holy Spirit's help. So in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 16-18, through 18, the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And his prayer for them was that they would understand God's love for them. So he says in Ephesians 1, 16-18, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? God wants us to see ourselves as His inheritance. When you think of yourself, how do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as being God's inheritance? He wants us to see ourselves as being His special people. He wants us to grasp that we are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But we can only do this by the enlightening of the Holy Spirit as He enlightens the eyes of our hearts. In other words, as He reveals Himself to us. Again in Ephesians, Paul prayed the same thing for the Christians. In Ephesians 3, 14-19, Paul prayed, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So he's praying for, for us to have power in our inner being. Why? That you be rooted I'm sorry, uh, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ. That's His love for you that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I mentioned these two passages for two reasons. One, to make sure that you know how much God wants you to know how much He loves you. Second, I want you to know how elusive this knowledge is for us poor, weak sinners. His love is infinite. We're finite. By definition, we're not going to grasp it in and of ourselves. In fact, he says the love of Christ surpasses knowledge just in the passage I read. I don't know if I use elusive in my notes, but as I think about it now, I don't know if that's the right word because God's not trying to hide it from us. Rather, it is impossible for us to grasp on our own without God revealing it to us, without revealing Himself to us. Paul is praying for the Christians to come to know the love of God. How often do you pray that God would reveal more of His love to you? I believe this is the subtext of Jesus' prayer for the disciples in John 17. He's praying in their presence in order that they might hear His prayers for them. That's why He continually mentions over and over and over again that they are God's people. That God gave them to Jesus for Jesus to redeem them from their sins. I believe this is what the disciples needed most on that night. To know that God loved them. That they belonged to God. Can you imagine when Jesus was betrayed and the disciples in their weakness fled from Him and they went off to their homes, they went off and hid and in their thoughts as they are thinking about what they've done, that they have abandoned their Messiah, that they have abandoned Jesus um, who has loved them so much. They would be undone They'd be overcome with shame and grief. And that's why Jesus tells them ahead of time, over and over and over again, you belong to God because God has given or He has chosen you and has given you to Me. So this is why He repeated over and over, that they belong to God and God gave them to Jesus. I believe that the knowledge of God's love for us and that we belong to Him is vital for us to know. A lot of our difficulties as Christians would remedy themselves if we simply grasp this truth more deeply. And God wants us to grasp this truth. He wants us to grasp just how much He delights in us as His chosen possession. He doesn't just tolerate us. 
And I think that's the way a lot of Christians think of their relationship with God. God's tolerating me because Jesus came and died for me. And I'm a wretch and I disobey God so much that He's just tolerating me. He's just putting up with me until He comes back or until I die and I go to heaven and I won't sin anymore and then He will lavish me with His love. That is an unbiblical idea. He doesn't just tolerate us. He delights in us. He desires us. Many of us, even mature Christians, struggle to know just how much God loves us. I struggle with this. And over the next few minutes, as I outline why we struggle with understanding God's love, I hope that you will examine yourself to see if you struggle to grasp God's love And then, if you do struggle to grasp His love, I hope that you will ask uh, in your own soul why you struggle to grasp His love. I think that can be a very beneficial exercise for every Christian. In order to understand God's love, we need to understand that God's love is completely unconditional and undeserved. God chose to love us apart from any conditions in ourselves. He chose to love us in eternity past, even before He created the world. He did not look into the future to determine whether we would be good people, whether we'd be uh, worthy of His love, or even whether we'd choose to love Him. His love for us is completely Unconditional. There's nothing that God, um, there's nothing in you that would cause God to love you. So His love is unconditional. It's also undeserved. If God did look into the future to make His choice of who He was going to love, nobody would be chosen. None of us in this room would be worthy because we have all done things that have made us very unworthy. We are all sinners. His love is solely and entirely of His own grace and love. Nothing He saw in us or ever would see in us motivated Him to love us. If God looked into the future to make His choice, all He'd see is, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, All he'd see are children of wrath. We all by nature hate God and deliberately disobey Him, choosing to follow our own desires, our own lust, and our own um, self-will. We glory in ourselves rather than in Him. Yet in spite of all this, God has chosen a people for Himself and loves them dearly. He loves us so dearly that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal eternal life. The whole meaning of Christ's death on the cross, the whole meaning of His coming here to earth to live a sinless life, um, and be hated by mankind. His whole the meaning of His resurrection from the grave 
It all centers upon God's desire to purchase us to be His redeemed children. God chose us before the creation of the world so that Christ might make us fit to be God's own possession. From reading this passage in John 17, my theology has been refined. Jesus, did what I've learned, and I knew this, but it, it really came to the fore of my thinking. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus did not die on the cross to make us God's special possession. Does that sound odd in your ears? God, Jesus did not die on the cross to make us God's special possession. The reason why I can say that is because we have been God's people from eternity past. That's exactly what Jesus is telling the disciples. Uh, The Father has given you to Me. And so God gave us to Jesus in order that Jesus would make us fit by His perfect life, by His propitiatory death or sacrificial death to make us God's fit to be God's possession. We were God's people first. So then, therefore, Jesus came and died for us. This is important because there is a false teaching that says that Jesus went to the cross to secure God's love for us. This false teaching gives the impression that Jesus had to go to the cross to convince the Father to love us. Christ died on the cross not to change God's mind toward us. Rather, God loved us from eternity past. God loves us and gave us to Jesus for Jesus to die for us to make us fit to live with God, to make us fit to have a relationship with God. In light of this, it seems, and I've said this before, it seems um, that God loves us better than His Son because He did not spare His Son that He might spare us. He permitted His Son to perish by the worst of deaths and to suffer the wrath of God that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. This idea of God's love is too much for many Christians to bear. They cannot really believe that God loves them because they're such big sinners. Have you ever thought... Like that? Have you ever thought that I don't know if God loves me because I am such a wretched sinner? If you if if you if you've thought like that, I've got some good news for you, and I've got some bad news for you. Which do you want first? I'm a half uh, half uh, glass half full type of guy, so. Um, I like good news, so I'm going to give you the good news first. If you recognize that you are a really big sinner, that you are a wretched sinner, well, then you're correct. So you're right. That's the good news. The bad news is you are a much bigger sinner than you even realize. 
your sins are so great that the only way you could ever be saved is by Jesus suffering an eternity of of God's wrath in your behalf, in your stead, in your stead, in your place. But then that leads to better news. God the Father and and Jesus, uh, God the Son, loves you and values you so much that Jesus was glad to die for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before Jesus, He endured the cross and despised the shame. For the joy set before Him. The, what is the joy set before Him? The joy set be, that was set before Him was you. The joy that sent Him to the cross was you. He did not just love nameless, faceless sinners. His love for you sent Him to the cross. God loves each of His people as if there was only one of you to love. Tim Keller says that God is ravished and smitten with us, even with those of us whom no one else noticed. Is that too strong a statement that God is ravished and smitten with us? I don't think it's too too strong a statement. Listen to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Hear that? God rejoices over you. He exalts over you with loud singing. It's tempting to think that God only reserves this kind of delight for the super-Christians, you know, for the Charles Spurgeons, for the John Pipers, for the John Calvins of the Christian world. But God is not only loving and delighting in the super-Christians. In fact, Zephaniah makes it clear that God is delighting uh, in Jews who deserve nothing but damnation and punishment. They deserve nothing but His wrath. Zephaniah makes it clear in chapter 1 just how deserving Judah, the nation of Judah, was of God's wrath. One commentator said, uh, in language that uh, I'm not really used to reading commentators um, use, he said, in Zephaniah's day, God's people were living like morons among morons. That's the only way he could describe it. They were living very sinfully. Instead of worshiping God, they were worshiping Baal. They were falling all over themselves to serve themselves rather than God. But because God loved them so much, He took away their punishment and transformed their entire nature. Listen to Zephaniah 3.15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Or uh, some translations have it, the Lord has taken away the punishments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Everything that could bring Judah's people harm, especially their sin, especially their rebellious, um, 
their rebelliousness and their idolatry. God says He has taken away the punishment that they deserve. Taken away the judgment that they deserve. Verse 18, Zephaniah 3.18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. And this mourning here is the mourning of repentance. They had turned so completely away from God, they had uh, taken His uh, worship and uh, turned it into to something completely other than worship of God, worship of Baal and stuff like that. And, and God saying, I love you so much that I'm going to change you. And He causes them to mourn over their sin, over their idolatry, so that they will no longer suffer reproach. When we sin and our hearts are repentant, our typical reaction, unfortunately, is to become so ashamed of our sin that we are tempted to withdraw from God. When we're sinning against God, when we need Him more than ever, we tend to to shy away from Him because of our sin. But God delights in our repentance. God smothers repenting sinners in forgiving and redempting love. When we trust in Christ, when we repent of our sins, we fill God's heart with gladness and delight. And again, oftentimes we we make we, we believe the opposite. When we sin and turn away from our sin, we become so full of shame and guilt that we have a hard time approaching God. But uh, our relationship is with God is always strengthened through our repentance. He doesn't just make room for us in heaven when we turn to Him in repentance. He makes room for us in His heart. We've likely come to believe that God loves us more when we obey Him and therefore that He loves us less when we disobey Him. But the Bible says that Christ paid the price completely for all of the ways that we have sinned and all of the ways we ever will sin against God. God's wrath was turned um, God's wrath toward us was exhausted on Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. When Jesus said, "It is finished," it meant that all of God's wrath was, had been poured out completely on the Lord Jesus Christ. All the wrath that you deserve, all the wrath that I deserve, was exhausted on Jesus Christ. So from eternity, God only loves us. And He loves us even before we trusted in Christ. Wherever you are in your level of obedience or disobedience, wherever you are in your walk with God, if you belong to Jesus Christ, regardless 
of the sins that are going through your mind right now, the sins you committed yesterday, the sins you've committed in your past, the sins that you will commit in your future, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you belong to Him, if you trust in Him alone, and you have entrusted yourself to Him uh, as your Lord and Savior, God loves you with a perfect love. And He delights in His love over you. Tim Keller says, the more you understand how your salvation is not about your behavior, the more radically your behavior will change. God loves you. Believe it. And if you are not trusting in God's love, if you are unwilling to believe that He loves you. Uh, John Owen, the, the, the great Puritan, said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness towards Him is not to believe that He loves you. I just want to make a, a, a few applications real quickly and we'll be done. We bring glory to Jesus when we trust in Him. This is just awesome. Look at verse 10. He says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. He's saying He is glorified in believers. That is an amazing thought. He is glorified in us. We're sinners. How can He be glorified in us? How can He receive glory from sinners? When we trust Him, when we recognize He loves us and we trust Him for His love, when we obey Him even when we don't want to, when we repent of our sins, all this is really God's work in us. You, have no, you did not trust in Christ because you were smarter than, than uh, the non-believer next to you. You only trusted in Christ because He gave you faith. Because uh, you were given to the Father. Or, or fa- rather, the Father gave you to Christ. You know, this is just another thought that's going through my mind. You were not... Um, you didn't just join the church. You were called into the church by the Holy Spirit giving you faith. You belong to God from eternity past and you believe in Christ because He, by His Spirit, has called you to Himself. When you repent of your sins, it is because He is at work in you. And you bring glory to Him. He rejoices over us. We bring glory to Him. This is awesome what Jesus is telling His disciples. Secondly, We don't have to shrink back as Christians. We can rejoice in Him whatever our circumstances. Um, There is no changes in the way God loves us. Um, Or there's no change, rather, in God's love. Though in the way He may be working in our life may change, He may send us through trials one day, He may give us bright sunny days the next, but His love for us regardless of wherever you are, is unchanging. Regardless of your sin, it is unchanging. Um, 
God loves you. And then thirdly, if you are struggling to have love for God in your heart, and you're saying, how can I love God? How can I grow in grace? How can I become more holy? Because my sin seems to hold me back in in how I love God. Have you ever noticed that there's not a list? You must do this, then this, then this, then this in order to, to be more holy or in order to develop more love for God. There's not a list. Basically, the way that we uh, become more holy, the way that we um, grow in our relationship and in our trust for God is by meditating on His love for us. And that's what we have on every page of Scripture is God's love for us. This is His love letter to His people. And so we read it and we drink in His love. And guess what happens as we meditate on His love? We begin to love Him more. We begin to hate our sin more. We begin to love our sin less. We become more and more holy. So it's not a legalistic list. It's just trusting in Christ and reading and meditating on His Word as He tells us on every page that He loves us, that He delights in us, that He loves us so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. Let's pray together. Father, um, I pray that You would um, pour out Your Spirit uh, and pour out Your Word upon each and every soul here that uh, they would have such a, a torrent of Your love flow through their hearts that this world would become less precious, that their sin would become less precious, and that You would be more and more precious to them each and every day. Father, it is common that Christians live oftentimes more like orphans than they do as dearly loved children. Father, I ask that You protect uh, Your people here at Westminster from that by filling them over and over again with this great knowledge, with this great revelation of Your love for them in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.